Welcome to the Two Hip Podcast. This week's guest is an old friend. I'm really excited to have this person on. They have been doing all sorts of interesting things from when I knew them all the way up till now, most of which I'll let them explain. Basically, some of the big things. Right now, a PhD candidate, I believe, involved in um, the accessibility of contemporary Shakespeare performances. That has a lot of depth to it, which you can dive into in more detail, as well as some really interesting things happening with video games and Shakespeare, which I kind of want to dive into. And we were also in a bunch of plays together back in the day in the what days which have been referenced before in a couple episodes i believe going back to a wonderful movie we were just talking about uh, in college called nocturnal city uh that was a lot of fun and it was an entertaining uh, experience we'll say to say the least without further ado this week's guest sawyer kemp and the crowd terribly wild. i need a sound effect there really hi welcome <laughs> sawyer hello thank you for having me on it's exciting to be here Yes, I'm so glad you're able to be on this uh, podcast, and you're my first official uh, West Coast guest. Oh man, here we go! I have a lot to <laughs> a lot to do repping the whole West Coast. Yes, you're, I'll, you're I'll setting the bar for the whole West Coast <laughs> out of Davis. Um, I don't know if I actually said UC Davis, but yes. Um, but what I like to do right in the beginning, just dive in. Why don't you take this chance to explain yourself? Explain yourself. The hostile segment where you explain you like you're on trial sure um i well like danton said i am an academic i'm currently a phd candidate at uc davis i'm hoping to finish this year or this summer is sort of my timeline and i work on accessibility generally my dissertation is about accessibility in contemporary shakespeare performance um but the realm of accessibility has let me work in games and game design as a mode of accessibility, um, which is where that motion capture Shakespeare game comes in. And I also worked at some escape rooms. But the other sort of angle of that has been largely around theaters. So I've done a little bit of uh, pop-up Shakespeare in bars. I helped found, co-found a trans-inclusive theater company that had our first show last summer. Uh, Sometimes I do writing, sometimes I do other things. Uh, that's, that's kind of how, that's kind of how it goes. I did participate in a panel on hipsters at an academic conference, so I don't know if that makes me an expert, but I'm going to pretend that it does. (laughs) Well, hopefully it makes you an expert on what not to do. That's my, that's my, that's the goal of this podcast. You'd be surprised. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to, is it hard not to be a hipster? I don't know. It is. I guess it it can be. So when I looked at this, when I was looking at the podcast and kind of researching and trying to wrap my brain around it, first of all, my first instinct was like, oh, no, am I authentic? Like, am I, (laughs) should I, should I not go on the podcast? Um, And then I was like, are there still hipsters? Are millennials the same thing as hipsters? Or like, are hipsters, like, aren't hipsters just kind of the appropriation of queer aesthetics and styles by straight people? Like, I had a lot of questions. Yeah, these are good questions. I like like where you're going. Yeah, I think. It's one. Of, I even asked myself. I was like, "Hipsters, kind of, we're, we should be beyond that." But I still, I feel like there's still a lot of of that happening. I think like also whatever maybe whatever that is. Hipsters might be. I'm gonna. I, I'm gonna really regret being the only person from the West Coast now. But are are hipsters an East Coast thing? Maybe because like on the West, it's Coast, definitely more East. Nobody Coast, yeah. cares. No. <laughs> well, I think where you are, yeah, I don't think anybody yeah, cares. <laughs> there's certain parts of California where there's some hipsters, definitely. Like, yeah. 
yeah, maybe the cities you would expect, like L.A. maybe probably has some hipsters, I would imagine. I haven't been there in a very long time, but yeah. I think San Francisco has techies, which are not hipsters. They like... <laughs> They're like uh, this kind of force of gentrification and they do have a style and an aesthetic, but like they're definitely not considered hipsters. People don't call them that. So, yeah, somewhere somewhere in the middle. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we can, we can get into that, but yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> before we get too into the, the serious debate here. The, ontolo- <laughs> um, the ontology of hipsters. Yeah. Yes. Let's, uh, let's do just one more quick segment, which mm-hmm. is the two hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to hypocrisy like the recapture for authenticity meant to be easy on humans hard on hipster bots um which i'll reiterate just because i'm trying to make it simpler um since so some of the more recent episodes i'm trying to to keep it to basically just a moment where you felt like you were uh, a hypocrite in terms of your authenticity like like being true to yourself and in a moment where maybe you you didn't you didn't feel true to yourself, and this can be any point in your life. It could be yesterday. It could be years ago. So you can take a minute, sort of <laughs> absorb that question. So it's a tall order. <laughs> so I I feel like my answer to this is a little bit diffuse because um, I I feel like maybe there were a lot of things about myself that are inauthentic or were inauthentic. Um, I I was also thinking that probably a part of why you may have invited me on the show is because I'm trans and that there's a kind of like narrative around authenticity that often goes with trans people and their transition. Um, And Mm -hmm. I I think that that is for some people really useful and like a valid rubric of like, oh, I went through this process and I felt more like myself and that has like a legible meaning to them. But I also think that's not always true for everyone. And maybe that's my version of answering this question is like <laughs> at, at different points in transition, it took me like three years to decide to go on hormones because I was like, I don't know. Is that the right thing? How do you know if it's the right thing? You know, and right. I, I talked to my my therapist who said things like, you know, I I don't know if you know this, but if you're asking yourself whether you might want to go on hormones, like that's not usually something that a lot of cis people experience is that feeling <laughs> of confusion and right and so uh, so yeah after after I decided to start a medical transition, I did I did feel like a lot of both like happiness about the things that I was seeing and experiencing and anxiety about like if this is the right thing and if I would continue to like it and, and what things um, mm-hmm. are not in your control, I guess. And that is, that is something that I think is difficult where there's a, there's this narrative of like, I'm going to do these things and then I will become the authentic self, but it's not always so straightforward. Is that a good answer? Or is that a really bad answer? I, I think so. I think that's a real answer. That's really what, <laughs> okay. that's the that whole point of this test. I think you pass that much. It's a real answer. Even if it's uh, it, it, like, there are points where you're not even sure but I think that's yeah. the whole point, right? That's like a real answer is that it's okay for it to not be sure. I mean, I, I've um, I've talked to pe- like trans people who were like felt like a hundred percent sure like mm-hmm. early on, which to me is like almost baffling. Like I've, I actually I feel like your situation is more relatable in that a lot of people probably would be like, I'm not sure, you know. And and it is a big thing. And if you don't feel like it's like fits perfectly, you know. And and I think um, there's a lot of different reasons that you might feel that way uh and and trying to figure out like weed out what that is i imagine is the the tricky part right yeah well and also i think 
I think especially in terms of gender where it's like what is authentically masculine or feminine is something that's always under debate and like so policed and so sort of anxiety producing for even straight people I think where it's like am I being authentically myself right now um but I but yeah I think I think there's some middle ground in between genders which is where I like to take up space and where I think there are increasingly other people who feel like they maybe belong in that middle zone um and that I think is hard to figure out in terms of authenticity because you're always sort of questioning about where to go with it Mm -hmm. for me i won't speak uh, none of this is applicable to all trans people i'm always just representing myself um but but i I found it to be good disclaimer (laughs) the more that i the more that i pursued that question the more questions i had yeah okay i think that's good i I think uh i think that's like i said that's a a real answer so and that's the key of the whole like two hypocrisy segment is to kind of weed out what i think are sort of the, the pretend answers and i i I generally find that most people that I'm talking to, I mean, I guess the whole point I'm getting people on the podcast is people that I think already passed the test and that's just sort of a fun way to prove it. Um, but I, it, I guess I'll be amazed that, that the interview where someone like is just just really can't answer that question right and somehow just butchers it. I don't know what that moment's going to be yet. but <laughs> They're just a real tool. Uh- <laughs> just like, why did I bring them on the podcast? I have no idea. Yeah, I also I guess I was also thinking about the like trans narrative in terms of authenticity and wanting to sort of validate the idea that like, even if you're not pursuing, if even if you are for some reason not able to present the way that you would like to, or you can't pursue a sort of medical treatment that you would like to for different reasons, like safety or access issues, right? Like you're still authentic, even if you're not participating in those I don't know. Okay. What to call yeah, like if you haven't reached that point where you want to like transition you yeah. know, in whatever way or if that, you decide that, not whatever to, that means for you. Yeah, or if you decide not yeah. to or if it's just not available to you right now, it doesn't mean that you're less authentic than someone who has. I I feel like the I I feel like with gender and this is definitely something that I've been finding as I've tried I didn't set out to be like a person who does trans transgender Shakespeare stuff because I <laughs> thought that was sort of passe and I I didn't think that's what I wanted to do but it, it, I have done it I've, I've started to be that guy I guess um, but I do feel like there are sort of different levels of this conversation that we're trying to have at like the interpersonal level which is like so far um, beyond what is happening at the legal level where there are things that we have to say like because of Mm -hmm. how far we have to go with protections for people who occupy those identities. But it's also like, I think so much more complicated than that too. And I wish we could have those conversations instead of the base level, like, please don't harass people for going to the bathroom kind of questions, you know? Right. Yeah. Like how do you make that work? Yeah. 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 That's a good point. Anyway. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You just, yeah, just like have my brain working all the time, every time. But, (laughs) and it's been a while since we've talked, but the great part is, like, I think probably the last time we had, like, a real in- in-depth conversation was prior to your transition, right? Yeah, definitely. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, so, I, but I wanted to say, like, I, you still seem like you. Like, you still embody the same person. So, like, when you talk about that authenticity being there, like, you still seem like you, which I think is a good thing. Like, like the, the point that you're making of, like you're still authentic as yourself. I think you're proving it, at least from my perspective. Um, so I, pre- I appreciate that you can like, 
Uh, I don't even know if you're aware of it, but it's it's a it's a thing that I am aware of. Like I can see that it's still you. Like right now, even just now, like the little I'm watching the video, and not everyone listening is <laughs> able to see your face. But like I can see like little quirks. I'm like, yeah, this is the same person. Go it's like it. the same. It's the same spirit. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I think that's a good thing. I I think that that makes sense, and and maybe sometimes the closer that you are to someone, the more anxiety you have over them changing. And because that was something that my sister kind of at the beginning of my transition was having some trouble with and she um part of it was when I first changed my name she really felt like she felt felt difficulty with it and had trouble kind of using the name Sawyer and and it took her a while um and I realized after I talked to her about it once was like she really felt like this was me rejecting the family somehow and that this was like changing my name meant that I didn't want to be the same person that I was before and I I literally just had to say, you know, no, that's not what I'm doing. Um, I still want to be the same person. I guess I'm hoping to be more of that person even than I was before, which does, mm-hmm. I think, I guess I am. I guess I do, to some extent, adopt that narrative about authenticity. But um, <laughs> that's that's my grad. <laughs> Sorry, the grad, <laughs> the grad student in me is like, authenticity must be deconstructed. Um, but <laughs> but you, but you have definitely, of all the guests I've had so far, you have thought about this way more than anybody. Well, I will. I did. I did look up the OED oh, definition. I can see the notes of, of authenticity um just to make just to figure out sort of the evolution of that so if you do want to know about some 15th and 16th century definitions i have those um, oh wonderful <laughs> wonderful but um but yeah just to just cap off the story my my sister i think she initially had some trepidation and the more that we talked about it and the more that she uh we really made it a priority to see more of each other and to visit each other more um and she's really i think shifted how she thinks about it and she even said you know oh i realized that it's not you're not different you're still the same person Um, right yeah yeah that's good i think i think that just yeah proves that point of like it's the same person it's it's about it's about allowing that person who who wants to transition just that it's it's really about their perspective at that point and the the idea that everybody else feels like they need to weigh in on it and and be a part of that whole the, like their whole experience yeah i think there's so many things that like we experience internally that are never as outward as this and so mm-hmm. like people can't comment on it they can't call you out for like you know oh you changed this aspect of your life you know like oh no it was hidden like you hide all these little things and here's yeah. someone this is part of, again like, like sort of similar to what you said like part of the authentic aspect is like you're literally showing it like it's a very visible transition yeah. and so you you like even if you wanted to sort of hide away like it's kind of hard to avoid if you want to have any sort of normal life right like you have yeah. you're like very exposed it's a very raw sort of thing i think it's tough sometimes inner to navigate it a little bit and i i lean into this is just my personality and there's no there's no right way to do this um but (laughs) but i usually just i i've been in situations where i have to be like you know me with this other name and we had a class together but now i'm this guy you know (laughs) um and uh and so that's that's kind of fun i i try to just go at it with humor because that's my defense mechanism for everything and it's (laughs) all right for me um yeah but yeah i think it's i think it is something that people feel like they're entitled to an opinion on one way or the other where they like want to I luckily and I, I I should say like a lot of my friends and colleagues have been very supportive and and a lot of them have been very positive and, and have and that's great the level of like 
you look so handsome now. I'm never tired of hearing that I'm very handsome now. Um, but it's all, <laughs> but it's also sort of like, yeah, but even if I wasn't handsome, this would still be the right choice. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It shouldn't just be about that. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I feel like that, um, you were talking about like sort of um, gender fluidity should be yeah. something that's that exists regardless of like whether someone's cis or trans or or I had a conversation with um, uh, one of my guests a few podcast episodes back and I, I experienced this conversation and I, I, I explained that I can't possibly understand where this person's coming from but it seemed a little confusing it was it was a father of a, a kid who was transitioning mm-hmm. which the younger someone gets when they want to transition I have more not, I, won't, I don't want to say issues because I don't have issues with it, but it, it's more complicated to understand really what they're going through in that scenario. Like, I mean, you can sort of understand that perspective, right? So, and the thing that confused me though is that it, I, I believe it was his daughter was transitioning to be a son, his son. Um, and it was something about like the types of toys that his daughter was playing with sort of indicated yeah. that that person wanted to transition and that seemed like a oversimplification of of what it means to be trans and so i was a little bit sort of stunned by that and and i I don't know if it's just the way the father's way of interpreting it and maybe he's misinterpreting it i I like to think that's the case but it it was like shocking for me to hear this and be like that that's that could be like you can be a girl and like boy toys you can be a boy and like girl toys like that shouldn't be the reason you want to transition i think it's it's about really like i mean you can articulate it but i imagine it's about not feeling sort of comfortable in that gender there's there's this kind of hotly contested question about like how young people should be allowed to transition and i'm not a medical Mm -hmm. doctor um my impression of a lot of this has been that it's like this is often sensationalized and used to like make the more vehement positions on both sides come out right um i will i will say that something that i think we should be thinking about a little more is um like hormone blockers for for people who are below the age of 18 who'd like to transition they have as far as i know no medical side effects that hurt you but they do delay the onset of puberty which would let people then be able to make that decision on their own without having their body already begin to sort of take on secondary sex characteristics so so one way of changing that narrative or that discussion right is to be thinking about like people who are pre-puberty are going to go through a transition of a sort either way whether or not they are allowed to start hormones right um Mm -hmm. so that's that's my sort of soapbox about like how kids should transition and whether they should and and i think we can be i think there are certainly some kids who know at a young age that is the right thing for them i will say i wasn't one of those kids so it's like not a catch-all for everything right um right so that being said yeah i do think i do think that part of what i like about non-binary identity and and why i choose to to claim that space for myself is that i think opening up what what people of all genders are allowed to look like and be and do is helpful for everyone. Um, so in that way, yeah, I, I agree with the idea that there's more than one way to play with a toy, right? Or more than one mm-hmm. person who's allowed to have a toy. Um, and a lot of times when I see uh, maybe reductive descriptions of gender in on both sides, they do trot out those kind of tired stereotypes of like, oh, it must be a girl because they like pink. And it's like, well, you know, that's not enough yeah. either anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, yeah, I think it's a little complicated, but uh, 
some a little column A, a little column B on that one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, um, I love my family, but I think, you know, again, it's from an old, slightly older generation. A lot of them just come out and they're like, my son does something remotely masculine in their eyes and they're mm-hmm. like, oh, he's all boy. He's all boy. Yeah. He's all boy. Like they say that over and over and over and over. And I'm like, like, what does that mean? That means yeah. nothing to me. And in his, the age that he's growing up in, I like to think it means even less. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, one of the, the positive things is that, uh, with the, some of the parents of, of kids in the same ages as, as my children, I, I like the conversations that I'm having with these parents in that they're all really thinking about this from a different perspective, like really trying to approach it from as gender neutral, you know, as a perspective as possible. Um, and people from a lot of different backgrounds, which is also impressive, but, uh, <laughs> You know, I just it's nice to see that there are people trying to think about that perspective a little bit more. Um, but I don't know if that's just in my little narrow town. You know, I, I know obviously there's half the world, half the half the U.S. anyway, that um, maybe doesn't necessarily agree with all that. Uh, yeah. That needs to try to open their mind a little bit. And again, I think I need to get back to the fact of like, really, this is someone else's life. The, the impact that you think it has on you, like the. The idea that these people are going to go into some other bathroom, like that that's the big defining like reason, right. it's just it's absurd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a, more of a straw man threat than anything. But yeah, I mean, I, I um, so I do a little bit of work writing for a local paper um, and I was covering this school board meeting last week. Um, or they were <laughs> they were voting on adopting textbooks for their K through eight like social studies classroom and the new textbooks that have been made in the last decade are made to comply with the Fair Act which like stipulates that a certain amount of like inclusive representation must be in the books. Um, right, so yeah. so these books have gay people in them. Um, it has like <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> it has like Harvey Milk and Ellen DeGeneres. Um, they're like, yeah. <laughs> but it also has. They put up a list of like over a hundred new figures that are included in this book um, of like all different ethnicities and sort of different contributions. Anyway, it was a very broad list and some of them happened to be gay, like a handful of them. Um, mm-hmm. And it was this big, 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 big protest um, because it's a, it's a California town, but it is a, it's very diverse. It is a farming town. It has a lot of different kind of communities brought together. Um, and it was a really, it was really interesting for me because I think I do exist in a little bit of a bubble, um, cause I'm an academic and because Sacramento is pretty liberal in many ways. Um, but it's, it was a, it was kind of a wake up call to go somewhere and be like, oh, people are still mad about gays. <laughs> There's some people that are still mad about this. Um, uh, yeah. so that, I don't know, that was, it's, there's a lot of different levels that the conversations need to be happening on and i try to be patient with people and i try to believe that people do the best they can with the information they have at the time and i think there's a lot we can do to help spread more information (laughs) yeah i mean i think the one of the biggest things is just like until you know someone in your family group peer group you know so whatever social group we're referring to like it'd be it's harder to to sympathize, empathize, you know, whatever the case may be. But mm-hmm. uh, it's once once that you start realizing that that you have all these different groups represented in like, oh, I have a relative that, you know, it represents this minority group and this mm-hmm. minority, you know, and and you, you once you start to realize that and those people become more open, like the more I think the more open everybody can get, ultimately, that's just going to have more benefit in the long run, I would think. 
Yeah. Um, but that's a hard thing to do. It's a lot harder to be open about it. It's hard when it puts a lot of the pressure on like on the minority group, right? Where it's like, you know, oh, now that I've met, now that I've introduced my racist uncle to a black person, that person <laughs> can fix it somehow as sort of a, a large, right. a large order. I think there's, I think there's a lot of that that is useful. I know that my but some members of my very conservative family have had similar experiences. Um, but I also think there's there's work that we can do as allies. I try to I I try to intervene when I can on behalf of people that are not just trans, right? Like I wanna I wanna be able to have those conversations on behalf of my um a, a big one for Sacramento is the police violence issue and, and how that plays into sort of race and mm-hmm. race tensions. Um, yeah. So I, I have been trying to have that conversation so that my friends who are immediately affected don't have to, you know? Um, and I, so I think that's the kind of value that, that we can have, but I guess I'm getting this a little far off from authenticity. <laughs> no, no, I think, this, you yeah. know, I, I keep saying that, like that, that's sort of the, the thing that brings everything together for the podcast is like trying to be authentic, but having a real conversation in real time. Yeah. If the topic goes in any direction, I'm not very uh, particular about that as long as we're just having a real conversation. Yeah. yeah, And I think um, I I do want to ask one more aspect of this particular conversation that we're having right now about um, like being authentic, I guess. And you, you said you felt pretty comfortable. Like, was there, was there any questioning about being trans or was it just like, um, because in your case you sort of, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I apologize if I'm wrong, but in your case you sort of came out as a uh, lesbian and then like that you, you inhabited that space. Yeah. And then later on you decided to transition. Yeah. Um, I- from a, a cis uh, woman to a trans man. Am I saying everything correct there? More or less, yeah. Um, okay. So I... <laughs> and I don't want to... I'm not... First of all, just hold on before you answer. <laughs> I don't want to oversimplify. But right. so in in that experience... Obviously, there's a lot more <laughs> complexity to what I'm saying. But uh, so in that experience, though, what I'm getting at, were there were there moments where you were like, you could see a few steps ahead and thought about those moments later on in life? Or where you maybe even now think back to other points in your life and say, well, maybe that was the real me. Like, you know, do you yeah. question the past and vice versa? Well, I think that's actually a really interesting question. And I, I think that it, I think I had a really strong attachment to a lesbian identity. And part of that is because I grew up in, well, I went to high school in Kansas and it was really, really difficult to come out as a lesbian. And like, I felt like relief and terror when I realized what lesbians were and that I might be one. Um, And I spent like a huge amount of high school and the girl that I was dating in high school, we, we both sort of shared this mentality of like, telling other people that we were lesbians, but we weren't like those lesbians, like not like the ugly lesbians who were manly. Um, And that's so wild to me. And it's obvious to me now, just, just this, this massive like mark of repression, right. Is is that I, I was so obsessed with Audrey Hepburn and that was like a huge part of my identity in high school is that I would dress like her. I like, lied this should have been my example of hypocrisy i lied and told everyone i was five seven because that's how tall audrey hepburn was um i'm five nine uh i watched like all the movies i tried to like get close it was it was in retrospect um creepy 
so so I I think I that's just that was sort of pre coming out was this Audrey Hepburn narrative and then it carried over into the like lesbian but not that kind of lesbian uh, thing um and then when like I determined to be like a like a very feminine lesbian like the, yeah. sort of the opposite of whatever stereotype you thought people in this this area had of you yeah and and so yeah. some of that is like what people in kansas think lesbians are and what people right. <laughs> uh, what negative connotations people had with lesbians that i thought i needed to combat um and it wasn't really until i went to college that i saw you know well <laughs> the first time i ever went to a gay bar was a drag king night at x bar do you remember x bar <laughs> yes, um, yes. <laughs> a drag king night at x bar which i think is closed now and i saw oh i wish i could remember her name there was this hot there was this hot butch who worked at the lgbt resource center everyone loved her <laughs> um and she was performing at drag king night and she looked like fucking cool um <laughs> and i think that was the first time that i really had this moment of like oh like butches are hot oh butches are hot and then i was like oh wait and then i spent several years sort of like figuring out how to be a butch um and and at the same time was taking a lot of women's studies classes and reading a lot of like theory and and thinking more complexly about gender and how it related to the self and whatever um and so i started identifying as non-binary in college um started kind of i guess experimenting with that as a part of my identity and and just sort of kept um kind of swirling around it and circling in it and and coming back so um so to answer the second part of the question which is the are there things you look back at and and i think even as this is something that i really do feel i feel a a lot of relief around it and i feel at a sort of material level a, a lot less physical dysphoria which is huge for me um, but I do, I do sometimes have this moment where I really miss being a lesbian. Um, and I, and, and the thing is like, I've actually identified as queer for some time too. Like I've been, um, there was a phase of sorting out the difference between like men that I'm attracted to and men that I want to be like, I think that was very complicated, um, mm. and continues to be complicated, honestly, because I, post-transition, pre-transition i was in a dating pool where straight men were interested in me and now i'm in a dating pool where gay men are interested in me and they're very different and that's something i'm still (laughs) kind of um learning about i think i'm not great at being gay um i don't i i think i i just feel like a child um and it makes me feel kind of lost um but and then there's the the sort of counterpart to that is like sometimes i see a butch on the street and we don't do the butch head nod because she doesn't think I'm a butch and I'm, I'm not right. Like I'm just not anymore. Um, but it feels <laughs> like a loss in some mm. ways of like, I used to be part of this group and this strongly knit identity group. And now mm. I'm not. And I think there's a reason for me not to take up space in that community anymore. Right. Like I think there are people who really don't want men or masculine people in their lesbian spaces and I I think I can respect that element of that I think those people should definitely accept trans women into their lesbian spaces Um, but I can understand them maybe not wanting me there Um, but it's also like it's there's some weirdness where I feel like oh I really strongly identify with a lot of women's issues around like healthcare and um, abortion and and Mm -hmm. uh other types of like reproductive access um issues and that's it's weird to not be a woman or a lesbian and still have a stake in those those issues right 
Um, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, it's uh, it's very complicated. I think, but it, again, I think that's what makes you human, authentic <laughs> human. If we keep bringing it back around, right. but just like to have this 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 uncertainty and have a like, I think it's okay to be like, yeah, you know what? There are moments where I kind of did like this or I missed this aspect. Like that's what part of being a human is, and and moving through different phases of your life. And uh, some of those phases might be hard to sort of differentiate. And for other people, uh, perhaps in your case, it's a little bit more clear cut to say this is a transition. You know, right. very literally. Um, but I think it it's I like to think that anyone listening that's considering this, um, or you know, has these similar feelings can understand that like. There, you know, there may be moments of like, well, I'm not too sure, but that's also part of the process. That's part of being human um, and being someone who transitions through something like this. Yeah. So I appreciate that perspective. Yeah. And I think, I guess I do want to validate in case there are like baby trans listening. Uh, but I, <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways to be trans. Definitely valid to be uncertain or to have some fear about it. And I think part of that too is because a lot of the information that's available is um like there's not a lot of things that the doctor gives you in advance of the transition like you get this <laughs> sort of nine page long consent form and then you ask questions and they can't answer everything like will this happen to me and they're like maybe we don't know <laughs> you know like statistically oh, no lovely. one's no one's done that study <laughs> and you're like cool thanks for nothing um so <laughs> trans people have done a lot of like online resource gathering for each other um and sort of social media type stuff so definitely seek that out it's not perfect it's not a perfect system because everyone's unique and different and and full of their own anxieties but there's definitely people (laughs) trying to help each other so it's out there yeah that's good it's like a good it's a good that you have that um that space that community that you can reach out to yeah and um we're gonna put some links to Sawyer's stuff on the podcast, Yay. so you'll have some options there. And I hope I'm not going being forward by saying you could probably reach out to Sawyer. Oh yeah, go for it. To. I'm <laughs> I'm busy, but I'll try my best. <laughs> um, okay, so there's another thing that really jumped out to me, that's uh, sort of down a different vein, but the the escape room, yeah, uh, and the seductive ubiquity of capture. I want to know more about this. <laughs> Can you explain what that is? I'm really fascinated. <laughs> um, yes. Um, Danton has been mining my CV. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, so I wrote a little, um, I presented this at a conference and then a friend of mine who uh, is an editor for Analog Game Studies, uh, I can't remember if she asked me or if I asked her, but I ended up um, adapting it a little bit for a journal article. Um, So yeah, in that article, I think, I think I just was, I was looking at escape rooms and uh, from the perspective of accessibility, I think it's a really interesting phenomenon. Like it is this immersive theater experience where you give up your freedom for an hour, even mm-hmm. even though it's usually like the door's not really locked or there's a safety ex- escape. Right? It does. Right. Um, it does kind of have this element of masochism to it. Um, that <laughs> that there's this. Uh, you know, I agree. And all games are masochistic, right? It's an <laughs> agreement to participate in struggle or to an agreement to, to be disempowered in some ways. Um, oh, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that there's I I think in the argument, I, it's been a couple of years since I wrote that, but I think what I, my argument was <laughs> um, is that uh, there's there's a little bit of like 
liberal the liberal idea behind uh willingness to lock yourself up and it, and sometimes it it is something that we don't think about as a privilege right is this idea that mm-hmm. i will willingly enter into this element of constraint um as a sort of as a leisure activity right mm-hmm. um yeah. and that there might be some elements of that that are particularly like suburban um right like i'm i'm participating in recreational danger or i'm participating in recreational entrapment um is sort yes. of an interesting <laughs> mindset to go into stuff with um and i i think i just saw a lot of people do escape rooms over and over and over for a long time and started sort of wondering you know what is it that makes us want to go into a small locked room and stay there um and and try very hard to get out on a thing that is specifically meant to be hard to get out of but just barely just barely possible enough um i i think because when i look at access there's like the stuff that people will put up with and the stuff that they won't um and so when i watching people sort of hit their breaking points over different things like what is it that really drives them over the edge is it like when a lock is sticky and doesn't work right away or is it you Mm -hmm. know these other these other elements and it's it's very rarely like the room was too hard it's usually the small things that kind of hang us up so like one specific thing yeah that that sticks with you yeah i i used to um i played the the game online for a while like before it became the physical sort of escapes and when it became the physical space i was like this is amazing um, and I've actually weirdly never done one, even though I'm fascinated by this. Oh. Um, so I definitely need to do one. But, uh, you know, I don't know if you know about this, but there's actually there's like a whole market of um, I don't even know what you call them, like kidnap camps yeah. where people get kidnapped and taken to like an, a, camp, a camp where they um, will try to escape, uh, which is just like. It's crazy, and I. But at the same time, I say that I'm like kind of want to try it out. Right, you're like you're like. <laughs> like, it's like why am I intrigued like by this? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's I like think... yeah. That's almost like that's like some BDSM level stuff. Like just like man, I kind of want to be tortured a little bit. It's a little weird. It really uh, is. That I, I don't know why I feel that way, but hey, that's kind of yeah. That's interesting, and just like this. I, I don't know if it's this thing where you want to prove that you can get out of something. Like if that's what it's about, or mm. if if the actual like. I mean, in my head, that's what jumps out to me. It's like I, I, when you were talking about it, I was like, I kind of, I think I would want to do it because I feel this need to like, oh, I can, I can best this room. I can prove to someone who created this game that I can get out of there. I can be better than this game. But, but yeah, I, I wonder if that, like, what other people are thinking. I mean, what did it boil down to? Any one thing? Did you feel were, like was this very um, like? Were you looking at this from the outside in, or did you actually interview anybody in the process? I was sort of. I mean, in the sense that I was uh ethnographically like experiencing two years of working there i guess i was interviewing people um i that article was a little more um theoretical i guess than it was kind of uh investigative Um, okay but i think i think it's interesting because we do the competition element is really something that i think draws people to escape rooms i also noticed that there's definitely an elitism element to it too of people who really want to prove how smart they are um Mm -hmm. and there's uh also a like so when i when i worked there a lot of our a lot of our actually like bread and butter income came from doing private events that were for companies and corporations who would bring huge groups of people to play and have like a teamwork team building kind of synergy day right 
Um, yep. Yeah, we did one in my office actually. We we did like a local like in our office one. We oh didn't yeah, actually yeah. Go to an escape room, but yeah, same idea. Yeah. So yeah. So you know. Um. So it's that element of. I don't know. I feel deeply torn about escape rooms where they both seem like something that I know for a fact can be used to teach people things. And in terms of the fact that I like (laughs) educational objects, I think that's good. And I think that we should, you know, work on... I like that they... The best escape rooms, in my opinion, force you to be collaborative. Like, they don't reward individual intellectualism, because I don't care Uh, about that. I think that's just, like, Harvard guys showing off, you know? Like, I I love... One of the best things in escape rooms is when a group of people come in and they really, like, want you to know how smart they are, and then they don't do very well. It's just very satisfying. Right, because it's collaborative, Um, yeah. Yeah, like, I want you to succeed by working together and doing well. Um, But, so, there's there's this element of, like, the competition... um, that is, I don't know, vaguely capitalist. Um, but the other part that I think is interesting about escape rooms, right, is like you do it and you sign a contract that says it's going to be okay, right? Like at the base <laughs> of it is this promise that like actually you're not locked in the room or actually if something went wrong, you could at the worst you'd be suing, right? That'd probably be all right. Um, you know, like <laughs> um, I, I think that the reason that they succeed is that they give you this um this promise of safety underneath the uh, underneath the illusion of danger um and that's mm-hmm. not a hundred percent me that's me taking uh Deleuze article and putting it on the idea of the escape room but um <laughs> right. but the uh the this idea of the contract i think is really core to the escape experience um and right and i also there's like uh, in California, you can't lock people in rooms, but in Nevada, you can. Like that's allowed in the state of Nevada. And so we get <laughs> we get people who would come and be like, "Our oh well, we did one in Nevada where they did lock us in the room." And it's like this point of pride, you know. But I'm like, you still they survived the real the yeah, real one. We you were know, from their perspective. <laughs> yeah, we were really locked in. It was like, oh, where are you? You know. So I, I think, yeah, and I can't help but think that one of these guys who gets kidnapped you know in a van somewhere and it's like well that well i went to the kidnap camp and they just right. pulled up in a van and pulled me up off the street like i didn't know when it was coming you know yeah One of those things but they but even those guys have to sign a waiver at some point that says that's okay to happen to them in the future you know yeah and i think it, it seems to me like the more willing you are to allow that to happen to you like maybe not a hundred percent of the time but i would guess that the less the the less likely you are to have that happen to you in your life generally right like people people who are in danger of like who who are in sort of high risk um scenarios anyway are not the people who like to go into these kind of scenarios generally speaking right Um, yeah it's that is actually you're making me think like just as a point yeah like you don't generally fantasize about something unless it's rare for you for it to actually happen yeah. yeah, like like I think, you know, I even make these jokes with my wife sometimes about like post-apocalyptic living and like we have like plans for what to do if that happens. Like if the zombies attack, you know, if I'm a zombie, are you going to shoot me or are you going to run away? And she's like, shoot you. And I'm just like, <laughs> like I, okay, I'm glad we are on the same page. Like we have we, we're, we have our communication. We You know, we know how it works. I but Liz. is that ever really going to happen? No, of course not. Um, it's completely absurd. And and I think there's something about like you fantasize in a weird way about these scenarios that are like, yeah, it's just so remote. But but you're right. In in places where they have real struggles, like like you know, uh, like civic disorder and just like like a community falling apart, are they going to be doing this? No, I, I highly doubt escape rooms is doing well in those kind of places. 
Yeah. You know. I mean, I, I definitely verbally heard people say similar things of like, oh, I, you know, I survived X. Why would I want to do this? Like people who would be part of a group who are sort of less excited about it than other members of the group, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seemed to me like there was a little bit of like a, I, I would need to do proper stats on this to make this argument, I think. But there was kind of like a racialized element to it where people were like, yeah. uh, no, dog, I don't want that. You know, like, uh, right, I, right. I think. I think that um, maybe for a population who is at a high risk of incarceration for things they do or don't do, right, um, it might be less exciting to get locked in a room. And that's not to say that, like, Black people can't do escape rooms, because they definitely can and do. But I think it's this function of, um, like, privilege and, like you say, fantasy about things that are unlikely to happen to you. Um, that might be part mm-hmm. of it or that might that is at least part of it enough that we should reflect on it a little bit, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, the racialized aspect is definitely true. I I, I had a, a group of friends who went to an escape room and told me about it and they were very like a uh, diverse group of people from all around the world. Yeah. Um, and it was really fascinating to hear all of them describe the scenario. And like, for example, like one person was Indian, one person was like Irish um, and then there were a couple Americans and different people from around the, around the world, but it was just fascinating to hear those perspectives and be like, Oh, I didn't really like this. Or we thought even just like how to solve the problems was also yeah. different, like how they go about solving clues. And it's, and like inherently there's a little bit of bias in the way these things are probably created, right? Like it's probably created for one sort of target audience. The one that like fantasizes about this as like an escape. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's maybe not necessarily thinking about other people's perspectives. Um, I think that there is also an element of like the narrative of the game that plays into this. So there's obviously some of them that are really going after uh, that like danger theme. And I think at the beginning of the trend, that was especially true where people were really um, like, I'm trying to remember now, but there's a lot of like escape the the maniac's basement, you know, and and the killer's <laughs> basement, and and right. these ones where if you fail, the the fail condition is that you die right in the game. <laughs> um, and I I am grateful to say that you know at my at my escape room that wasn't the condition of failure for most of the games because we had thought about that and also because once I got there I started being like hey I I don't want that right um, right but I. Uh, I I do think that there's this element of there's sort of a counter narrative coming out of rooms that are trying to do different things where the conditions of winning or losing are a little less life and death. I, I think in that article, I call them like um, non teleological or like non uh, like goal driven, not to say that they're not goal driven, but they're not the same level of. I wish I had read that article uh, <laughs> recently, um, but I, I think that there's there's a counter there's a trend at least to make things a little more uh, creative or to look at sort of different ways that the narrative can be used. Um, and there's I, I have some friends who started a company that is a pop up escape room like you were talking about, so they go out to the different groups, and theirs are really I think they're really interesting because they do offer um, they my friend. Uh, Kevin actually coined the terms of like masculine escape rooms or masculine endings mm-hmm. to the escape room to mean those more like aggressive kind of scenarios. And then, then I sort of coined the counter term like feminized scenarios of, of things that are just not that like life and death level scale. Um, and those are not really, right. they don't really need to be gendered that way, but 
Um, I think I think that's an interesting trajectory for the escape room to go on. I think that also brings it closer to theater, which is something I'm interested in seeing. Um, mm-hmm. There is an escape room, and I guess this is a life or death scenario, but there was a escape room put together by a have to look up the name of it but it was a group in chicago and it was a theater in chicago that did it actually but uh it was a kind of cold war scenario and they had everyone who was in the it was sort of like very high budget very um very 80s uh sort of aesthetic where Mm -hmm. they were asked to like avert a crisis avert this crisis right there are three outcomes one is where they uh they lose and everyone dies um one is where they achieve kind of a peaceful stalemate the way that we the u.s currently has and and which was the result of the cold war um and then the other one was that they could achieve a peace state like a real peace um at the expense of the city of chicago specifically so the scenario was that Mm. chicago would be bombed but everyone else would be safe um and that they use this to generate a you know that this this forces people to not only work together but also to sort of confront ethical questions uh and the designer and the director i think said that they really thought of it as a commentary on gun violence and i thought that was a really mm-hmm. interesting way to get people to think about some versus all kind of narratives of uh of violence and reparations and things around that so that's just an okay. example of like bringing it to another level and bringing it a little bit of depth and a little bit more of the theater into it, which I think is really valuable. And I, I'm excited. I I feel like I can't tell if escape rooms are like a flash in the pan and they're done now. Like we had a boom bust and it's over or if they're going to evolve and become something else. Um, right. Like, like a sleep no more level uh, yeah. theater kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, and, and speaking of that, I want to jump into your play the knave. Uh, oh, yeah. game yeah because that's sort of tying tying this all together now mm-hmm. what so can you describe that a little bit sure so play the knave oops, um play the knave is a motion capture shakespeare game from the mod lab at uc davis uh, mod lab is the game studies lab that does a lot of a lot of different cool projects and i'm one of a team of many people um i actually i worked on the project for a couple of years at the very beginning of its uh tenure and then i took a couple of years off to work on my own stuff and i'm back on it now um mm-hmm. so, and it's it's wild to see how much it has grown since i started but the basic <laughs> concept is that it uses the connect camera to animate an on-screen avatar so you move your body to move the avatar's body Mm. um and it scrolls the lines from the scene like a shakespeare karaoke kind of machine um is (laughs) how i explain it um and it's it's pretty cool it started out very rudimentary where uh, actually the first version of it i ever saw was just sort of stick figures um and then they built more avatars and got new skins and meshes and stuff to to beef them up um and we have an amazing uh, amazing team of uh coders and and they deserve way more credit than i do um i was sort of the <laughs> like shakespeare accessibility consultant um and not of course, not yeah. a not a coder uh well i did make some of the subtitles which are just like a basic html um but <laughs> but uh so yeah so the game is i i got to see it installed at a few different theaters and used with a, a bunch of different groups of people and what, what i think is really been the the value that i've seen is that it uh, it allows you to select from different stages like physical like stage spaces that are 3d mm-hmm. renderings of real theaters um which is 
pretty cool. Um, and it allows you to choose like different avatars in different costumes. A lot of them have different types of bodies and different um, sort of. Uh, I, I won't I won't say that they're races because they're avatars that were built and they're not people, but you know, different skin tones anyway. Um and yeah. so it lets you and there's even some silly ones. I think there's like a, a robot and I Centaur or something. I wish there were a centaur. I don't know how they would animate that. <laughs> I, Nick will be huh. Nick will be mad if I tell him he has to animate a, a centaur. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think what it's what's useful about it is not that it's trying to teach people to act because I don't think that it necessarily does that, and I wouldn't want it to even if it could. Like that's not what <laughs> I made the game for. I want if you want to be an actor, go to acting school. Um, but what I think is useful about it is it does help people understand theater and. Uh, a play as a living text that is in it is it lives in its production right so the the, when you read a Shakespeare play that's not the play the play is when it happens on a stage with these other considerations Mm -hmm. um and so that's been really it's been really cool to see different people especially um amateur actors or people who are new to acting or people who might think that they don't want to act at all right do this game and they'll say things like wow it's really hard to move and talk at the same time i never realized that you know and and uh and little subtle things yeah moving and talking (laughs) right um and and it's i think it's cool for shakespeare especially and and for um plays where you want to stress performance or production choice or the the ways that a scene can be different because it allows them to make all those choices about casting you know what is this play like if all of uh, how does measure for measure change if everyone is black or how does this play change if everyone is a woman or how does this play change if we set it um you know in uh if we put this you know very happy music behind it versus this very dark music um they're still Mm. building new assets into the game but i think the goal of it is to be able to allow students or um anyone who wants to i suppose um to see the production made real um and just to let that be kind of a i i say it's them like experimenting within the text that's how i put it and i think that's how that that's an interesting way of changing what research means to me of of i'm looking into this play and i'm trying to understand it from multiple perspectives and and this is a tool that allows you to do that all at once right so the yeah very literally sort of get in there and actually see it from these different perspectives yeah in a a very quick time you can kind of do several iterations yeah yeah that's a that's an interesting process to be able to go through that yeah Um, it it, i never you know it's funny because like i came from the architecture like background with like vr and rendering and and um I, I did a lot of that, but I never really thought about how it would apply to theater. So it's really fascinating to see you working on this now. Yeah. Um, and to see that like, like the same way that I, I run through different iterations of models, like you can do that with the production. You could like very quickly s- sort of see what it looks like with these different types of characters and different arrangements, different configurations of not just the set and like the physical space that I might've been thinking of, but to actually see like the experience of the production mm-hmm. and like what that actually means. And the more people you could potentially get involved as live actors to sort of do this all at the same time, you could really test it out. I imagine even more sort of uh, completely. Yeah. I think it's, it's cool because it lets you think of theater. Well, I, I think of, it makes you think of it really spatially. Um, and it also 
I don't know. The the thing that I ended up being really excited about with it was that it let people be silly with theater in a way that I think people don't usually do. Like, you'll casually pick up a guitar and noodle on it, right? But you're not going to just, like, mm-hmm. casually... I mean, you and I might, because we're weirdos, but most people, I think, <laughs> don't, like, casually pick up Hamlet and, like, try out a Hamlet scene, right? Right, um, let's just do this, yeah. <laughs> but it, it lets you kind of be silly, and I, I... This is a... My mentor and I ended up writing an article about the game and about the kind of value of bad acting a little bit and that Mm, doing mm. bad acting lets you sort of understand what good acting is and how hard it is to do it. Um, Right. Yeah. And, and I think that is something that like we have rock band, right? We have rock band, the game, we have just dance the game, but we don't really do that for acting. Like acting is this elite Mm. activity and theater um, is uh, theater, even from the technical side, right. Is a lot about like the elite, best most beautiful like you're always competing to be able to be allowed to participate in in some ways um and and i think this is kind of a nice democratizing tool that lets people be silly with it um without getting to i I will say like the the other benefit we found to it uh, as a a tool for teaching students is that it tends to make them a little bit less nervous. Um, Part of that is because when you play the game, you're generally looking at the screen and the Kinect is there picking you up. And most of the people who are spectating will be behind you. So you're not seeing your audience. They're watching watching both you and the screen and they do kind of flicker back and forth between them. Um, And people who played the game, we did a a survey, so I can talk about this statistically. Um, (laughs) But uh, people reported that they were less uh, they were less anxious. They felt less embarrassed. They didn't feel like the stakes were as high. Um, and I thought that was really cool um, to see people kind of let themselves feel a little loose. Right. And and I imagine if you could. So so describe that again. So they could see themselves or they couldn't see themselves and and in um, the avatar. So they the player sees their avatar. They don't see themselves. Um, they'll see. Oh, but, yeah, but the I, avatar I that's is what you said. Though. I just want. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I want thought i misheard it but okay so yeah that's kind of nice to be able to see just like someone else doing it yeah you can like you're almost like hiding behind this little like mask facade whatever and it gives you a little bit of space to not feel like this is me you know it's like it's a little more distant which yeah that i imagine that would relieve a lot of people's stress about doing any sort of performance if it was like a little bit of a disconnect it's definitely a distancing experience and i i've was talking about this with my advisor too because I she asked me to make some mini games that would be kind of for for people who really didn't have any experience with acting it was a way of bringing in kind of like theater games as a little warm-up exercise kind of um and Mm -hmm. and part of what I ended up saying was like you know we need to think for a long time we've talked about how the game is really a little bit like puppetry because it's not it it is more or less one-to-one I move my body that thing moves its body but it's obviously you know, it's reflected, it's mirrored, um, it's a little bit uncanny. Sometimes the, sometimes it, you know, gets a little bit of a, like, there'll be a little bit of a glitch for some reason or another, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, it, it is a little bit like puppetry. And so I was talking to her about, like, how do we construct these games so that there's, it's not a one-to-one identification. Like, that's not me. That character is him, right? Like, that character is them. Um, there, mm-hmm. There's some kind of uh, distancing. So we were we were working on building that in. I ended up going with a robot theme uh, for that. Oh, nice. <laughs> so. not a mustache theme at all. <laughs> not a mustache. a mustache that sort of takes over a play. That's coming. You know, he wouldn't happen to know about I, that. I don't. I don't know anything about that. 
Um, well, yeah, but uh, a funny thing is, have you have you checked in with Al, our our friend, our mutual friend, Alex Coulomb, recently? I I, I think a, a while ago, Alex was coming in through town, and we like tried to meet up, and it just fell through. I I from what I can tell, I think that we're both doing really similar things. That, well, that's what I'm, yeah, <laughs> jumping out I'm to like, me we should hang out. I mean, he's doing lots of like more more uh, like deep VR render stuff that yeah. he's doing. That's most of what he does. But he is he did just work um with uh uh I think it's called Opera America. Yeah. Um he did a uh like an improv type show that was very like sort of similar um to what you're talking about. I think it um it was Alive in Plastic Land. Yeah. So you should look up Alive in Plastic Land and uh and maybe reach out to him because you, you guys I'm sure could uh, share because you you got a lot of uh similar data I think that would overlap maybe a little bit and, and you could try to pull from each other's work and, and see what's going on. Cause I, I definitely think it's fascinating and it's, it's proving that this is like a direction that I think performance is going and we're going to see more of this happening and it's, it's just going to get more and more refined. And, and I think it's like that, like theater constantly goes through different iterations. Right. And, and um, it's one of those things that I feel like there's always going to be traditional theater. It's one of the, it's been around for a long time. It will probably be always be there. But like when film came around, it didn't completely obliterate theater. It was still right. there. It was still still thriving. But um, it definitely took on a different life. And I think this is one of those moments where this is happening and it's branching off into this new realm. And I I, I think there's what you're describing is just like endlessly fascinating. I, I think we, that could be like a whole separate podcast just talking about like VR and just like this sort of uh, – integrated interactive performances where people are like avatars in a world. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's sort of mind boggling. Uh, Very cool stuff. Yeah. Thanks. I, um, so I do have uh, I, I do want to sort of, unfortunately we have to wind down a little bit, but I, um, so before I get to my final question where I really <laughs> uh, dig deep, you um, really give it to me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's when all the, all the secrets come out and I start mentioning, uh, you know, plays from from <laughs> the days of yore. Uh, I I no, think um, I'm good but, with all uh, of them. <laughs> you're good with all of them. Good, good. Uh, so th- this just brings us really quickly to the next segment, uh, the donation section. Donation directions. Directions on where and how to donate your donations oh yes um so i thought i would come and rep the gender health center um which is a nonprofit in sacramento it is i'll be transparent that it is the sort of fiscal sponsor for skip theory the transgender uh theater company that i founded um but they do a ton of stuff there uh skip theory sort of uh we co- collaborated with them last year to produce a play by Kate Bornstein called Hidden Agenda. Uh, and our goal with that was to respond to some desires that the GHC had told us about to like do more arts activism type work because they really felt like they had done a lot of more social care and not a lot of um, like affective or maybe aesthetic care. So, so the Gender Health Center, when they're not um, working with us to produce plays, they do a lot of like medical care for trans people if you need hormones or if you are just a trans person who needs some health care they will hook you up and help you either get insurance or help you find some places that will take if you don't have insurance which is amazing and very helpful for a lot of community members um they do 
a lot of like emotional support, a lot of like social uh, groups that meet there that wouldn't otherwise find each other. Um, they do legal support. They helped me do my paperwork when I was getting my name changed. Uh, I literally, if there's something that could help trans people or queer people, they do it. They're a fa- fascinating organization. They like work on the AIDS, um, the, the, oh, the, I forget what it's called, the AIDS cycle, the um, like big bike uh, fundraiser. Um, yes. They're also a fiscal co- sponsor for Black Lives Matter in Sacramento. They're amazing. I love everything that they do. They work super, super hard and they help a lot of people. So it's the Gender Health Center. Their website is thegenderhealthcenter.org. Uh, on that page, there's a button you can click that says donate and they'll hook you up there. Um, and that will help out a lot of people. Uh, Gender Health Center serves a lot of people in the greater uh, sort of central valley of california it has a pretty broad reach and they do also a lot of things that are queer more generally and not just trans people but it's it's a big big organization with a lot of a lot of love and a lot of i don't know cool guys cool cool peeps (laughs) wonderful wonderful um i like that thank you um so i'm going to get into the sort of final question here which i like to ask um and that is uh, sort of um, how how would you recommend to other people uh, to live the, their most authentic life? How to how to be their most authentic self? <laughs> hmm. I think that maybe not listening to me might be the answer, <laughs> right? I th- I think that you know how to be authentic and if you don't know make the best choice you have and you'll learn something about it um i i don't know i think i think that there's not one size fits all answer to this i guess i i think that it's I don't know. Like, I am a guy who sometimes often uh, reads my horoscope or, like, looks at tarot cards, right? And I, not because I necessarily believe that, like, the Ace of Pentacles is going to tell me something about what will happen tomorrow, right? Um, But it is a useful reflecting tool. Like, sometimes when you read it, it, whatever that draws up for you is true, whether or not the card itself is true, right? Whatever those meanings are, they're they're about typologies or systems that help us think about things that are real in our lives. Um, so I think to be authentically, to be authentic or to live authentically um, is just to maybe try to stay aware of what your space in those systems are. Um, I don't know. You should probably get a therapist. Therapy helps. Therapy's good, right? Um, ther- this gives you a place to, to vent and work through this and get it get it out of your own head, really, ultimately, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go on the record with tarot cards and therapy. <laughs> Those are the answers. Wonderful. <laughs> I like that. Um, no, I, th- I think your greater point, though, is that, like you can you can use things as markers to sort of point you in the right direction and things that you relate to or resonate with you mm-hmm. but ultimately you have to dig internally and have a little bit of self-reflection you have to be able to be 
at least the, the you know the slightest bit self-aware and understand a little bit about who you are and then at that moment that that's sort of like the moment of of a revelation for you where you can be like oh that's that's who i am and you can accept that and sort of embrace that and then move forward yeah sort of summarize what you're saying yeah i think it's about reflection um maybe openness to possibilities i i guess i struggle with authenticity in the sense that i'm often like trying to see a lot of perspectives at once and then i kind of lose which one i think is like real and true but i also often feel obsessed with figuring out like what is real and true that's one thing i i feel like i've said to my dissertation advisor before where i'm like i don't want to write anything that i don't think is true uh which is uh, she thinks is funny because i guess not a lot of academics really bother with that Uh, (laughs) um but but i i think that i think that you have to be open to finding new possibilities and maybe open to making mistakes and figuring out a way to be accountable and responsive for all of the parts of your of your life i don't know that's a tall order i don't know i don't know that i do that i don't think i do a great job at that but i do my best but it's a start yeah right you could at least start there yeah it's a, it's a tall order but you can you can start with that and uh maybe op- optimistic but yeah having somewhere to start like that i think is good i think i think that's really what it comes down to um wonderful well unfortunately this is the end of the podcast today uh first of all thank you so much sawyer for being on i appreciate it oh thank you for having me it was fun to get to chat with you um hopefully we can uh touch base again in the future and find out um i I really want to see where this is going with your uh your work and um and i think you know when you and alex collaborate and create this future amazing product and it becomes like the next amazon i'm not going to be surprised i hope it <laughs> i hope it's a little better than amazon sort of ethically <laughs> ethically labor wise yeah yeah okay maybe that was a bad example but <laughs> the next big thing i'll just be vague um but yes thank you again and i have a couple things to end the podcast on now basically follow on facebook.com/2hippodcast on Twitter at Two Hit Podcast. Uh, thank you, obviously, to all the listeners. Um, and as always, if you have comments, feedback, guest recommendations, segments, or topic recommendations, please send me a message on uh, twohitpodcast.com/contact. Direct message me on Facebook or uh, Twitter. And we're working on getting other places. I'll just leave it at that. Um, there's places on the web- website where you can figure out what's going to happen. Thank you again to everyone. This has been the Two Hip Podcast. Mm-hmm.